In April of 1963, Reverend Martin Luther King was arrested in Birmingham in the midst of a campaign against the sort of social and racial injustice that was going on in Alabama and elsewhere. And he was essentially arrested for being there. He was arrested for coming as an outsider into their city, and the charge was that he was inciting disturbance, civil disturbance. And they put him in jail, falsely charging him just to get him out of the way and to try and stop him in what he was doing. But what I think is so amazing is that in doing that, they actually hurt their own cause and helped his. Because Dr. King was not about to just sit there and wait to be released. While in that cell, he penned the incredibly famous now letter from a Birmingham jail. Something that inspired many people that gave them a desire to rise up and be part of a solution, to seek justice, and to to be people who submit themselves to God's sense of justice and order and righteousness rather than to go along with the culture. It's wonderful how when people decide that they are not going to be swayed by uh, the machinations of the enemy, by plots against them, by people lying about them and making false accusations, that everything that happens in hindsight often moves justice forward. In fact, it was Dr. King who told us that this is the arc of history. It's bending toward justice. Now, when we look at this passage in Acts 21, I think we see rather a similar thing happen with the Apostle Paul. Because he's grabbed for being an outsider, for coming in and inciting a riot, which he didn't start, his enemies did. And he is thrown in jail, and he takes every opportunity that comes out of that, and in fact, there are years of opportunities that are going to come out of this event to bring his cause forward, his cause being to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible, and ultimately to bring it even to Caesar, the emperor over all of Rome. Now, if you weren't here last week or if you were dozing or something, let me just remind you what's going on uh, here in Acts 21. Paul has been traveling through on his third missionary journey. He decided it was time for him to head to Jerusalem. First, he wanted to get there by Passover. That didn't pan out. Then he wanted to get there by Pentecost. As he was going in each and every city, the Holy Spirit was telling him, when you get there, you are going to be arrested and you're going to be chained up. Then, as he takes the big trip over the Mediterranean Sea, and he lands in Palestine, he starts getting major pressure from people. Don't go to Jerusalem. They are going to turn on you. It's going to be bad. The situation there is not good. And he says, stop breaking my heart. I'm going. I know what awaits me. Agabus, a prophet, says, hey, can I see your belt? And Paul's like, this is weird. And then he ties his own hands and feet. He says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt. You will be bound if you go to Jerusalem. But Paul knows God wants him there, and so he goes. And when he arrives, having risked life and limb, having been just driven there by the Spirit, he's welcomed for a few minutes, and then he's told, listen, there's lots of rumors flying around. Rumors that you are telling Jews everywhere not to circumcise their children, to stop being Jewish, that God wants them to stop with the traditions and all the things that go along with their identity, and we need to nip this thing in the bud. So James and the elders there in Jerusalem come up with a plan, and Paul goes along with it. He says, why don't you and these four gentlemen who are under a Jewish vow 
You purify yourself. You go with them to the temple. You pay for them to finish the vow, which involved a ceremonial shaving of the head and several things. And people will see that happen and they'll know that you actually are not anti-Jewish and that these rumors that are flying around are false rumors. Here we find that the plan hatched by James and endorsed by Paul to lay to rest these false rumors actually backfires. That in trying to show love and fidelity, he's accused of blasphemy and deceit. Here's what happened. Some Jews from Asia Minor in Jerusalem, probably there for Pentecost, started the trouble up, and these people are almost certainly from Ephesus. I say that because when they saw Paul walking around the city, first of all, they knew him by sight. Paul had been for three years in Ephesus. And secondly, they knew the guy who was with him, Trophimus. Trophimus the Ephesian. They knew right away that he was a companion of Paul's, he was a co-worker of Paul's, and that he was a Gentile. They probably would have been physical indicators he was a Gentile anyway, but they, they were certain. And then later on, after that, seeing him out on the streets with Trophimus, they saw Paul in the temple carrying out this plan, serving God and, and supporting these young men in their vow. And they put two and two together and came up with like 14 and decided that certainly Paul had brought Trophimus into the sacred part of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed, and they started an uproar. These men from Ephesus certainly would have known what kind of impact the gospel was having there through, God, through the ministry that Paul was carrying out, and they saw here an opportunity to stop him, maybe permanently. And had there not been intervention from the authorities, this probably would have been the very end of Paul's ministry because it would have been the end of Paul's life. Here's the charges that are shouted, not in a court of law, but in the midst of just a crowd gathering together ad hoc. First of all, that he had taught Jews to turn their back on their heritage. Secondly, that he opposed the law of Moses. And remember, this is Pentecost. At first, Pentecost had been kind of a, a festival having to do with bringing in the harvest and all these things. But by this point, it had morphed into a celebration of Moses receiving the law from God at Mount Sinai. So they're all thinking about the law, and they're all thinking about the temple. And so the second thing is, he's opposing the law of Moses, which we're all zealous for. Thirdly, that he had defiled the temple by helping a Gentile slip in. It's a very serious thing. It, around the temple, there was an area called the Court of the Gentiles. Anyone could go. It was still part of the complex. But beyond that, there was this low wall, and every few feet, alternating Greek and Latin, there were signs that said, if you're a Gentile and you cross this barrier... It's your fault that you're going to die. That's what it said. And the Romans had actually granted the authority to the temple leaders to execute right then and there any Gentiles who should come in and defile this sacred place. So this was a serious claim to make. Ironically, these charges are the very same false accusations Paul is trying to lay to rest by taking part in this ritual at the temple. And as we read these three charges, I can't help but feel a sense of deja vu back to chapter 6, when Stephen is stoned to death. You remember, Paul was there as well, but he was Saul. He was not yet a follower of Jesus. He was holding the coats, making sure nobody took the wrong coat. He was approving of this murder of Stephen. And the charge that had been laid was, quote, he never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. The same lies again and again and again. And we as Christians, we expect to encounter the same lies and slander about us and about our faith again and again. And we cannot let that wear us down. We cannot be disheartened by it. In fact, Jesus told us this would happen. And Jesus himself, 
he, he came across this same sort of thing. They said he's been speaking against Moses, and he said that he was going to tear down the temple. Remember that? He spoke against Moses and against this, this holy house, and that's what they ultimately found him guilty for in the Jewish court. And, and so there was this, this sense, I think, that there was devotion more to a place than to the God to whom that place was meant to point us. And I'm always confused how this continues, even amongst Christians. When I was in Israel, I was, I was baffled by the, the sort of awe and worshipful reverence that people had that, that were believers in Christ who said, yes, I, I am filled with the Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that once filled that holy of holies, and yet they were almost worshiping what was almost certainly just a Roman retaining wall there in Jerusalem. Well, Paul was not even going to pick a fight about this. He knew that you didn't have to go to the temple to encounter God, but he was more than willing to go into the temple and worship God because God could be worshipped anywhere, and he did not want to cause anyone to stumble. And in the midst of this, these charges come his way, every one of them false. Make no mistake, Paul was doing everything he was supposed to do according to their traditions. These seven days of purification process, he was almost through the end of it, he hadn't brought any Gentiles into the temple. He hadn't told any Jews they must abandon their traditions. We know that because we have his letters gathered together here in the New Testament, and nowhere do they say any of these things. And this is not surprising. Beginning with Jesus himself, there have always been false accusations against believers. There have always been false charges leveled against disciples of Christ, especially those who've had success in carrying out the Great Commission, like Paul did. And, and we don't Certainly, we don't want to assume that any charge leveled against a minister or a leader in the church is false. That's dangerous. But we also don't want to immediately assume that they're all true and throw people under the bus before we've heard uh, all sides of everything because we have the promise from Jesus' own lips that there will be lies. He said, quote, they will insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. And because Jesus had said that and the Spirit had warned him, Paul is nonplussed when this all happens. And also recognize that what was about to happen, what was in the process of happening when they grabbed Paul, was they were going to kill him. They were beating him and they weren't going to stop beating him until he was no longer alive. This is quite a similar situation to what Paul had faced in Ephesus when he was there, only then it was the Gentiles who were doing the same thing to him. It was the pagans who grabbed him and declared that he was blaspheming their heathen goddess Diana and stirred up the crowds to riot. The gospel is not a safe message to proclaim unless you grind away all of the sharp edges at which point it has no power to save. We know that it's foolishness and a stumbling block to those who are outside of Christ, and yet, for those who then hear it and come to believe, it is the power of salvation. What happens next is very sad in my mind. As this man is being beaten to death, the temple guards spring into action. He's dragged outside the city, and the temple guards don't try to save his life. Rather, they shut the gates to the temple and lock the place down. This is so that his death on temple ground wouldn't defile the holy sanctuary and perhaps to keep Paul from claiming sanctuary in the temple. But the shutting of the gates to keep the outsiders outside is to me in stark contrast to the gospel which calls outsiders to come in, to come into God's presence and there to receive eternal life. At Christ's death, 
the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom, opening access to God, not just to one priest once a year and then with blood, but to you and me because we go covered in the blood of Jesus. And yet here they're closing the gates. And there's a wall going around with warnings. If you come in, you will be killed. Isaiah 56, 7, we read way back then, 750 years earlier, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And yet the doors are shut and the warnings are posted. Thank God for what we read. And I think it's, it's very telling that it's in Ephesians that we read this. As Paul was dragged out by the Gentiles in Ephesus and by some Ephesians here in Jerusalem, Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That wall that was there, broken down. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And this is what Paul had actually taught, that Jew and Gentile alike could come to God through Jesus Christ as one body. Out of two, God has made one. And just like with Jesus, it was the fact that people had seen Paul with the wrong kind of element out in the streets that caused them to turn against them and began to persecute Paul. But Jesus, too, had come for the lost. He'd come for the drunks and the harlots and the tax collectors that people didn't like and didn't want in their circles. And Paul was sent to the Gentiles, the idol worshipers, like my ancestors. And he wasn't about to shrink back from that mission because it upset some people, or even because it might lead to his death. And so there's a happy irony here, that as he is being beaten and he does not back down, it is Gentiles... In fact, it is the might of Rome that comes to his rescue. And it's really the quick and over-the-top response of Rome that saves his life. You see, right near the temple is this Roman fortress called Antonia, and there is a, a very high tower there that looks right down at the temple, and they would watch the temple, especially times like this during a festival. They would have someone always watching, and they would have horses and soldiers and people ready to go at a moment's notice because these things had blown up before in the past. That happens when a foreign power comes and occupies your sacred place. And so they were watching, and as soon as this unrest came up, somebody went up and told the tribune, a guy named uh, Claudius Lysias, and immediately off they go. He brings soldiers and centurions. A centurion is in charge of 100 soldiers. That means they brought at least 200 soldiers to deal with this. They came riding in quickly. They find someone being beaten by a crowd, and they get out the chains and arrest the guy being beaten by the crowd. They arrest the victim. This is Roman thinking. He must have done something wrong if he's being beaten like this, and he's got everyone so enraged. They chained Paul with two chains to one soldier on each side, thus fulfilling Agabus's prophecy. And as they start to ask and interview people, what has he done? There's so much shouting and chaos. One person saying one thing, this person saying something else. They, they, they sense they're not going to get to the bottom of this, A. And B, this may still turn into a full-blown riot. And so they pick him up and carry him away into the tower in the fortress Antonia in order to give him a proper uh, interview. As they take him away, the people shout away with him, 
which might just seem to us like they're saying, yeah, get him out of here, we don't want him here. But ultimately what they're saying is kill him. This word away with him, it can actually mean uh, take him out, do away with him. It's the same words used in Luke 23 when the crowd cries out together, away with this man, Jesus, and release to us Barabbas. Away with him. They want him dead. And that happened, of course, in the very same place 30 years earlier. So as Paul then is taken into a much quieter setting, and he's, he's asked, like, what's your deal? He begins to answer in Greek. And this is the kind of thing Paul does that I just love. He, he answers calmly, and he speaks the lingua franca, the, the, the language of someone who was a civilized Roman, someone who had been raised there. And Lysias is startled that Paul is clearly educated, that he is Greco-Roman background, not some brutish revolutionary. And he says, wait, aren't you that Egyptian who caused all that trouble just a few years ago? Thankfully, Josephus gives us some of the background here, that there had been an Egyptian Jew that a few years earlier had gathered 4,000 men at the Mount of Olives, where Jesus had gone to pray on the night of his betrayal. And there they were planning a revolt. They were going to ride down in and they were going to really take out a bunch of Romans, even if it meant that they would all be killed in the process. The Romans recognized what was happening, probably by spotting it again from that tower, and they rode in and many hundreds were killed, but the Egyptian himself slipped away and he disappeared. And everyone was kind of waiting for him to come back at some point and renew his attack. And I think you, this is just because it's super interesting, but you may want to make a little asterisk uh, on the word assassins there. In some translations it says, aren't you the Egyptian who brought 4,000 of the assassins, and it's a capital A with him to the Mount of Olives. Who, who are these assassins? Well, maybe it should be translated terrorists. In the original, the word is the sicari, which is actually a Latin loan word. It literally means dagger men which is a very hardcore title for a radicalized group of nationalists who were so, so over the top, so zealous, so extreme that they had splintered off the militant zealots to form an even more militant group. And, and this was a group that would often use the cover of a crowd to assassinate people. They were the original cloak and dagger assassins. They would literally have small daggers that they would put in their cloak. They'd get in the middle of a crowd, and a couple of them would kill the person they had targeted, and then they would blend back into the crowd before anyone knew what had happened. Their targets were generally Romans or, even more frequently, Jews who they thought were sympathizing with Rome. And they would kill these people, and they were hoping to create this sense of panic and terror so that no one would dare back the Roman occupiers. In fact, the word Sicario, hitmen from drug cartels, it comes from this same word. These were not freedom fighters. They massacred women and children. They were awful people. And this is who he thinks Paul is. Lysias assumed that Paul had been caught in the act, pulling out the dagger in the midst of the crowd. And that's why the crowd had reacted so angrily. And Paul may be a little offended here when he says, uh, I'm not Egyptian. I'm from Tarsus. I mean, next to Athens or Alexandria, Tarsus is where you want to be from. Culture, education. It's basically like saying, yeah, I didn't go to Cambridge or Oxford, but I went to Harvard. And yet, maybe not. Maybe he's not offended. Maybe all of this is very calculated. He doesn't say he was a resident of Tarsus or a native of Tarsus. Rather, he says a citizen of Tarsus. He's a Roman citizen, and as a citizen, he has rights. 
And as such, he asks for the opportunity to address those who have accused him. It was not a very normal thing to do, but they gave him the opportunity. They led him down onto the steps of this tower, and there Paul, we'll see next time, offers a defense. But think about if this had been you, how just your adrenaline's pumping, you're scared, you're angry, you're outraged, you're offended. Paul could have responded with, with anger or righteous indignation. Instead, he speaks calmly, rationally, showing that the tribune's assumptions about him were wrong. He speaks Greek, showing that he's educated, not some common rebel trying to stir up unrest. And because of this, he receives Roman protection, first of all, and a chance to make a public defense. As I say, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And Saul could spit some vinegar, but he also knew how to use honey to his advantage. He was all things to all people. He's speaking Greek when he talks to Claudius. He starts speaking in Aramaic when he addresses the crowd because he's relating to them. He is a Jew like they are Jews, and he is going to speak to them in a way that they all can hold in common. And as we'll see next time, his defense quickly becomes yet another presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any chance he has, he will bring the gospel to bear. Let me just bring a couple of application points for you to bring with you. First of all, sometimes our best plans don't work out. That happens. And sometimes it's God's will that they don't work out. This was a good plan. James, I mean, James and Paul, that's, that's two big shots. They thought it was wise. They thought it through. It was something that, that was not controversial to take a vow and go into the temple. And they've done it many times before. They could have been thinking, God, why did you not let this work out? What, what's going on here? Instead, he recognized God must have a bigger purpose. When our plans don't pan out, anger is not the way to respond, although God does understand when we become angry with him. Rather, we must understand that God is sovereign. We are not. Secondly, sometimes our best intentions are misread. Sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes it's on accident. When they say, brothers, help us, this is the man. If you heard that language in a crowd, help us, I would immediately probably tend to side with the person asking for help. There were probably many people who were deceived in that crowd who thought, well, they really did catch someone trying to defile the temple. We've got to stop him. When that happens, we cannot blame people for misreading our intentions. We have to recognize that we too are fallible. And as Paul seems to forgive. Thirdly, God is still in control when these things happen. And he can still be glorified through what follows. And that is what we see happening throughout the remainder of the book of Acts. And finally, the gospel must inform our response to this sort of a thing. When, when someone misreads what we're doing, our motives, when someone makes an accusation that is blatantly false, it's easy to say, you're the enemy, you've just come at me, and I need to now defend myself by coming at you equally hard. But the gospel says, how can God be glorified in this? That's Paul's main concern here. Not making a defense for himself. He gets sidetracked by what Jesus has done. It's easy to start a riot, especially today with Twitter and all the different things that can get people uh, 140 characters of information and then demand that they become outraged by it. It's easy to create chaos, but that's never what Christians are called to do. That is never what Christians are called to do. 
in a world full of terrorists and dagger men and murderous mobs, and a government that publicly executed people in horrible, tortuous, graphic ways in order to keep order, Paul and his companions stood out by responding with truth in love rather than responding in kind. And we are called to do the same. We look at our world, it's very different, especially where we live here in America. It's largely ordered as well. But chaos is always under the surface. We see that whenever there is something that goes massively wrong and people are left to their own devices. The power of the crowd to bring out the worst is always there. People's hearts are no less dark than they were in the first century. Last night, just around the corner down Miller Road, five people were shot in one house. Pray for those people. And we are called to bring light and hope to a dark and desperate world. We have to take that seriously. There is darkness everywhere. Sometimes it's disguised at light. That's the enemy's whole gig. Yes, he disguises himself as an angel of light, but we have true light. And when someone comes and lies about us, we've got to remember what Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad. Great is my reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Great is my reward in heaven. That person's a liar. So am I apart from Christ. That person's a sinner and accusing me. That's the same sort of thing we would have expected ourselves to do. Before we were adopted and justified and brought into the family of God when we were like our father, the devil. Where the tendency, even in the church, is to shut the gates like they shut the gate of the temple and try and keep that element out. We have to override that and say the gospel calls us to go out, to be salt and light, to proclaim the gospel and the love of God and the grace and mercy that comes through faith in Jesus Christ Whether we are being falsely accused, whether our intentions are being misread, whether we are even being attacked, we have to be the hands and feet, the voice of the Savior to a world that desperately needs to hear and encounter the voice of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that Paul would have been, well, very much in line with the old Saul had he responded to this vindictively and angrily and and tried to turn the tables on his opponents. Lord, we know that we couldn't blame him had he turned completely to self-preservation and tried to worm his way out of the situation. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the same, the same desire that St. Paul had when he said, how can I use this turn of events to glorify God and to proclaim the gospel? We know that revival will come only when we have that mindset. That says the gospel being proclaimed is the job we've been given as the church, as individual believers out in a dark world to bring the light. How can we do it every day? How can we do it in any situation? How can we do it in the midst even of slander, false accusations, lies, and the like? Lord, we pray that you would lead us and guide us. Whether we're in the midst of chaos or or order, Lord, wherever we are, we pray that we would be following you. And that we would respond in a Christ-like way to each and every situation. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us, especially this week, as we leave this place and go out of this church into the mission field that is the world. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the opportunities you've laid before us to bring your light, to bring the gospel, to bring your love into a world that needs it so desperately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.